Welcome, Play On Podcast listeners, to this week's episode. This is your host, Nano Taggart. The atmosphere in Cedar City right now is just incredible. The air is filled with anxious excitement as we're preparing for the opening of the 2015 season at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. Today, we're privileged to be sitting down with J.R. Sullivan, director of this season's production of Amadeus. J.R. has been involved with the festival for many years, including directing recent plays such as Sherlock Holmes' The Final Adventure, Stones in His Pocket, The Glass Menagerie, and Henry V. He was the festival's associate artistic director from 2002 to 2009, and J.R. co-adapted the festival's 2010 production of Pride and Prejudice, as well as last year's production of Sense and Sensibility with Joseph Hanready. He was recently the artistic director for the Pearl Theater Company in New York City from 2009 to 2013. He has directed many off-Broadway plays and is also a freelance director in Chicago. People like to hear why you keep coming back, um, especially with your resume. You know, it seems like you could be working just about anywhere you want to, <laughs> but you keep coming back to Utah for some reason. Well, I wish everywhere I thought that. That's, yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I, my first year here was 1999. Uh, yeah. I uh, was uh, contacted by Fred Adams, along with Cam Harvey and yep. Doug Cook, yep. um, and uh, they uh, were looking for someone to step in on the direction of a shop play, you never can tell. Uh, it was still early. It wasn't late. It was in, it was October. But fortunately for me, the first choice had to uh, back out of that. So I was on the list, and I got called. And and um, that was my first first time to work with Brian Vaughn as well. Oh, and, cool. Uh, so Brian was in that show. Yes, yes. Right he was playing the lead, Valentine. So that was the, my first year. And then it went well. Uh, they brought me back the uh, year after in the fall to do Driving Miss Daisy. Then the year after, in the summer, to do uh, Arsenic and Old Lace, uh, and that featured both Ivers and Vaughn. So uh, it was in the course of that summer that um, uh, Doug Cook and uh, Cam Harvey brought me into their office. I thought I was in trouble, uh, <laughs> I, and uh, getting called down to the principal's office. Yeah. And um, they they said they were the festival was interested in me coming on in this in a position as one of the one of two. Associate artistic, artistic director, directors, along yeah, with Kathleen Conlon, and uh, that's how that began. So that that happened between 2002 and 2009, awesome. uh, and I worked, uh, you know, in both theaters uh, yeah. in both summer and fall, doing, you know, a lot of Shakespeare, and uh, you know, other favorite projects of mine. Uh, yeah. I hate Hamlet was one, and uh, uh, Port Sabine Ernest was another. And during the uh, 2009 year, I was offered an artistic directorship at the Pearl Theater in, in New York City. York City yeah. and, and that let me stay home. I, I was living in New York then. And of course, you know, a, a great uh, platform and yeah. an opportunity. So reluctantly, I, I, I said so long to the festival. And at the time, I thought, gosh, that, that probably will be it for me. And mm. I, it was really a great, wonderful time in my career. Yeah. But happily enough, it's been I've been able to revisit it in these years since. So, uh, production yeah. Glass Menagerie, and absolutely. Then uh, Joe Hanratty and I had done the adaptations Sense of and, the uh, Pride yeah. and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, and uh, uh, and now, of course, this summer with uh, Amadeus. Amadeus last fall with Sherlock Holmes, and and now with Amadeus. So it's 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 a wonderful opportunity for me to come back to a theater I love and an audience I love. It's a 
privilege and a pleasure to return to this festival because the material yeah. is uh, rich, the uh, acting company is always strong, and the audiences are always here with a will for you to succeed. It's not to say that they won't look askance if, yeah. uh, if, if your production is awry, but um, uh, it's not like... Well, like New York, I would say, you know, yeah. where there was, all right, prove it. You know, and there's a, there's a little bit of resistance. They're engaged right away because uh, they are here as participants with this festival. Yeah, and enthusiasts enthusiast and, yeah. and with that will, you know, all the productions uh, from the first like you uh, yeah. uh, start from a, a strong place of possibility, which certainly enriches the experience for works of such Absolutely. density and complexity, like all like of Shakespeare and, and Amadeus. like Amadeus. Yeah. Um, I've noticed in looking over your kind of recent resume with the festival, um, a, lot of, a lot of period pieces, a lot of shows where uh, time and place and costumes are big vehicles in making the story move along, in communicating you know, the life and the time of the people, the characters on stage. D did it just turn out that way, or do you have, do you have an affinity uh, for... For pieces like that? Or? Well, certainly at a festival like this yeah, one, yeah, going yeah. to classical theater, that's going to be the norm. A big part of it, for uh, but, sure. but it's wonderful to have, to look at different cultural movements and social movements mm -hmm. and aesthetic movements in time and, and to thread those into the, uh, into the work. Into yep. the, and, and with that comes, uh, you know, the, uh, the psychology of those times and the, and the philosophy of those times. And all, mm -hmm. all of that has, has threaded its way to us as we shape it uh, to our own times. Because we, one day, yeah. are going to be a period it's true. in a style Very to, true. to some future interpreter of, of these plays. I think we'll yeah. set it in the, you know, 2000 teens, you know. And they'll uh -huh. be, you know like, <laughs> how, did, how, did, how did men and women walk and sit and such, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it will be the same thing. So to have that uh, opportunity here, I mean, generally, uh, obviously, at the Adams Theater, they tended to to yeah. fit into the architecture of the theater. Although there there have been except and very brilliant exceptions, exceptions to that, of course. But the Randall Theater uh, is always an opportunity to create the specific world of those plays. And yep. in Amadeus, for instance, uh, the world is that of the theaters of that time. Mm -hmm. uh, the the setting are a set of proscenium arches, not unlike the theaters that would have housed these uh, operas and in the in the fantasia of this play coming not from Mozart yep. but from Salieri, Salieri uh, yeah. as the central in intelligence of it as the central shaper voice. of it yeah. as the voice of it as the author of it as the as the one who would convince you and I of what we should pay attention think about to yes yeah. and what would we might have done under the circumstances that he lays out all of that is a is an expressionistic device mm -hmm. and i i think for for him it is uh it is a stage set you know Absolutely. the whole the whole the story of my life is a is an opera it's mm -hmm. a story so i'm glad you touched on uh, the importance of the set with this show uh, i had the, the the pleasure and the opportunity to sit in on a rehearsal and one of the production presentations a few months ago and um this is a kind of a grand undertaking. There's a lot happening on the stage in terms of props, in terms of uh, backdrops, curtains. Can you maybe uh, give our audience a little bit of a teaser as to what makes this production uh, so striking and why? Um, well, it has to be fleet. Uh, yes. You know, it, it has to happen with the quickness of thought. 
It's a dense text. Very dense, and the, yeah. and, the, and the it's set initially in 1823. Uh, Salieri is a, uh, Antonio Salieri, the Italian composer, very good one, by mm-hmm. the way. His uh, candle is nothing next to the comet that's uh, Mozart. Mozart. Yep. And his misfortune is to be alive and composing at the time of you know this magnificent talents, uh, yeah. uh, brilliance. And Peter Schaffer, of course, wants it's not just it's not a biography by any means. No, uh, it's not. It, it isn't even what happened to Mozart, uh, who died at the age of thirty-five, and in that that brief life composed, you know, six hundred plus uh, major works, uh, incredible uh, symphonies and operas and concertos and uh, piano concertos and uh, string quartets and mm-hmm. on and on and on and on. And uh, and uh, Antonio Salieri, uh, who was court composer uh, yep. to the Habsburg Emperor Joseph II, had a position. You yeah, know? Uh, it's like today. You know, artists have to. You can't, including Mozart. You cannot yeah. make a living just by the work. You That's have to true. have some sort of uh, uh, tie-in to a school yeah. or a company or some sort of administrative. So this position. would have been like the equivalent of, say, a, a poet laureate, like the official. <laughs> Composer of this governing body, who also has to teach at a university to, gotcha. uh, to, yeah. to make his living. Yep. Yeah, sounds like uh, a lot like today. <laughs> yes, yes, and and that uh, that uh, economic fact and the stress and strain of that is a, yeah. is a large part of this story. However, uh, it begins in 1823 and then flashes back to 1781, yeah. uh, the year that uh, uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart arrived in Vienna. Yeah. And uh, and then and then largely focuses on that decade, 1781 to 1791, when uh, until Mozart's Mozart's death, death yeah. yeah. And um, it has to zip from court to uh, to library parlor to a, a park, the Prater, uh, which is like Vienna Central Park, mm-hmm. uh, to opera houses, uh, performances of uh, abduction from the Seraglio, uh, Mozart's first um, piece there. Uh, in display uh, yeah. as presented to to a moment of Don Giovanni to the marriage of Figaro to the magic flute all in different theaters and 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 because it's it, a lot to pack the into story one story has to be fleet of thought and yep. telling uh, because it, it would be like you were sitting with yes. Antonio Salieri mm-hmm. uh, and he simply rolled it all out you know he wouldn't wait for uh, drops to happen and light cues to happen and, uh, and furniture to move. So we have to find a scheme, and that's what we are working on, to find a scheme that, that makes that possible. Everything's kind of always happening at once. Mm-hmm. And we keep suggesting different plays. Even the forte piano uh-huh. that's on the stage revolves and moves into different settings of its own, different different placements. So that they're, awesome. You know, and as a director, of course, you have to give the audience a, 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 there's a visual story that's going on. A fantastic visual story, along with yeah. the, the language, and the visual is a, is counterpoint to the uh, to the language. That's that's the the task, and uh, with Amadeus, uh, really a very dense uh, play in terms of thought and language, and mm-hmm. and turns of thought, and irony, and wit, poignance, drama, comedy, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, that all has to be very clearly set out. So the, the play, uh, like you mentioned, revolves kind of around uh, Salieri's experiences and his perception, both his inner life and his outer life. Mm-hmm. How much, how much do you, can we trust as somebody sitting in the audience? How much can we trust the perspectives of Salieri in this play? And how much can we take those as representations 
of the history. How, you know, how much of this is is conjecture? How much of it um, is straight out of a textbook? Well, it's about as much as you could trust anybody who has a story with an axe to grind yeah. and, uh, and, a, and, a, and, and also a point of view about yeah. it. It's not to say that that axe to grind aspect of it uh, completely colors it and uh, reroutes it into something that's not true. Not true, yeah. You know, any one of us wants to watch and listen carefully and closely for that which is true. The play as I have called it, is a fantasia. It's, it's, it's not a fact. It, it, it comes, um, it has an energy that comes off the uh, emotions mm -hmm. and feelings of a central character, making it, you know, abstracting it, making it a little expressionistic that way. He hears the music in ways that we don't hear that music today. It, it hits his very sensitive ears in a pleasurable and a painful way because yeah. he alone, he may be a, a second-rate or even third-rate talent next to Mozart, but he has been gifted with a divine sense of ears. He hears what it is, and that's, that's a peculiar torture for him. Envy, jealousy, even something that turns into a consuming hatred, this comes all off of of that this is a premise of the human experience you know from the first stories of our kind uh, we make an offering you know from yes. our heart and soul and my brother's offering is preferred yeah i must kill him yeah <laughs> so this legend about uh <clears throat> salieri poisoning mozart a legend that schaffer you know uh plays with and puts yeah. into the play and, and even titillates the audience with from the very first speech, yes. you know, did I do it, says yeah. uh, Salieri to us. It's really just the jumping off point for consideration of this premise of the human uh, condition, uh, this, this sense of worth or worthlessness, this questioning of ourselves, uh, this feeling of betrayal by God. Here I have devoted myself to you and yeah, dedicated yeah. my life to good works. And here next to me is this impulsive, spiteful, crude, vulgar. He's like the worst kind of indulged rock star you yep. know, in, his, in the uh, 18th century. Mm -hmm. And yet he is the one who is, who is, is given Blessed such with this amazing a, genius. A magnificent, a divine yes. genius. Why? You know, and that yeah. becomes the question. And it's not a, philosophically, it's not a debate about the existence of God. It's, it's rather about uh, the nature of God Absolutely. and our relationship to Well, to, we, ex we experience that through Salieri. This is a man that, like you said, I mean, he's given himself over to this world, to, to teaching, to composing, to music. He's paid all the dues you can pay. Uh, he thinks he's done everything he can. He believes he has a bargain he, yeah, since he, childhood that to and and, he, and certain this things is his have role. occurred to yep. to convince him that that was accepted and that mm -hmm. he is he is uh, he is an honored one, you know, in yep. the eyes of in the eyes of the Almighty and his successes until yeah. that comet lands in the court of Joseph II, yes. uh, named Amadeus. Just, just completely, you know, turns his his brains and scrambles them around, yeah. and, and and thus, you know, begins a desire on his part to silence Mozart. This story, this legend, got a lot of uh, traction in the nineteenth uh, century because of a dramatic poem that Pushkin wrote yeah. in um, in Russia, 
and then Rimsky-Korsakoff later made an, an opera of, opera out of it. So yeah. that, so that if it, if it had, if the story and the rumor of this had been reduced to a small flame, it got you know a uh, footnote. bellowed yeah. up a little bit you know, at that point. So so Schaffer makes his own own case for that, and like a Fantasia too, so much it has to happen quickly. We, we you know we, we we zip from place to place to place to place, and there are many scenes that are uh, unreal. You know, completely unreal because they are uh, amplified from the point of view of one man, Salieri. Yep. And it's Salieri's connection to us that Peter Schaffer is really interested in. You know, any one of us who's ever felt that sting of being slighted and overlooked mm -hmm. in favor of someone we, we suspect or even regard as less worthy, well, what happens? I wouldn't say that uh, poisoning and murder happens, but uh, uh, thoughts occur. It's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> complicated thoughts occur, even yeah. dark ones. And then pretenses uh, emerge, you know. Yeah, absolutely. A, a masquerade in face of uh, civility and politeness yeah. when underneath something else is seething and gotcha. roiling. So is this um, the way you describe it? This is, this is more a play about a man's relationship with his craft with with his muse with his god yeah and and mozart almost acts uh, like a device yeah uh, to, to show us the deepest and darkest of this this other character that people might not be familiar with yeah, as but, familiar with but there is enough about mozart to, and a lot of his music to and so much of his music yeah yeah this this is heavy with uh, the sound cues this this production it's the audience kind of experiences the pain or sees Salieri experience the pain of being aware of the genius of this music, and it's actually we hear it with him. Yeah, and the demise of Mozart, you know, which is charted uh, rather well by the playwright, you know, from his uh, exhilarations of just you know breaking from his father's uh, yep. control in Salzburg and uh, coming to Vienna, which was you know in that court, which was the very center of the musical world then, and, and you know the Viennese classical school yeah. and was, was the for, apex yep. you know of that, and would continue to be through uh, Beethoven. Um, uh, through to the, the, his harrowing demise, first from you know the penniless uh, begging uh, for support phases, and then into the uh, physical illness and and and, and deep suffering, you know, yeah. which which may have been we don't know what it was. It may have been rheumatism. Uh, it uh, it uh, it may have been um, cirrhosis, you know, yeah. of the liver. It uh, we don't know exactly what it was because there was there weren't such things as autopsies. You know, yeah, then. those sorts of yeah. But it's true that he was um, buried in a common grave, while not all that unusual at the time for uh, middle classes. His his funeral was paid for by this uh, particular patron whom he had known through the Masons and who had been an advocate of his, who had been offended by Mozart's uh, choice of material and work and who could have paid for a much more uh, expensive, expensive funeral, service and, uh, yeah. you know, with a commemorative stone and all the rest. As it is, we have no idea where that body was. Uh, Still a mystery, yeah. yeah. Some uh, parallels have been drawn between Mozart and Salieri to uh, Iago and Othello, including on uh, our very own on blog on Bard.org. Yeah, uh, are, Richard are those, III also. Yeah, exactly. Are those? Do you think those are are really there? Do yeah, very are some, a, a very effective dramatic device to have yeah. a, a which we've learned we learned from Shakespeare. We learned everything from him. Absolutely. 
and uh, the, the dramatic device of uh, a central character talking directly to us, making us a character in, yep. in the play, a confidant. Uh, and that sense that in that relationship we're hearing the truth. The truth is that character on stage knows it and will tell it and will we're, not tell it to people exactly. uh, around him. We're, or the, we're at least stage. hearing something that other characters are not hearing. Yes. Yeah. So Iago, of yep. course, comes to mind, you know, who, who, who sets out to destroy uh, someone who is regarded as superior to him. So well, well placed. And this is it's a, a hard, it's a heartbreaking reality of what human beings are capable of doing to one another, especially out of jealousy. And yeah, what do you think uh, this place says about fame and how we perceive genius? Why, why do we put famous historical characters, specifically creative geniuses like Mozart, on a pedestal? Uh, when when this play was initially popularized, a lot of people, uh, I've heard, took issue with the portrait of Mozart. We don't often encounter, uh, the, you know, this full portrait of a young, brash, unprofessional, vulgar, as you described him. Uh, we kind of just get the genius. We kind of just get the exalted version. We, cr we, we create the, uh, the statue that, that we each require for validation mm -hmm. or, uh, for our own uh, satisfaction. You know, I, I should say, and, and Peter Schaffer would say, we, this is not, the, the, how Mozart is depicted is in no way based on what we know about Mozart mm -hmm. uh, beyond the fact that there is a certain, uh, that scatological humor was evident in yeah. his, in his <laughs> letters. Uh, and, and there was a quality to him that, yeah. that is uh, utilized in this characterization by yeah. uh, Schaffer that that does have some evidence in Mozart's own writings. Mm -hmm. But audiences have to uh, recall and remember that the Mozart we see is largely the one that comes to the prism of uh, Salieri's mm -hmm. point of view. And anything that would be offensive about him would be exacerbated you know, as a consequence. Yeah. However, you know what's also uh, present in that point of view is he's he's he, you know his own his own uh, Salieri's own feelings are, are rent asunder often because he he is absolutely transported by the beauty of the music, and that never goes away. No. And uh, and he 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 knows he is present to something that are among the most perfect things uh, ever created yeah. in, in music or even in thought coming out of the uh, Enlightenment. So this aspect of, I mean, we, of course, we live in an age where notoriety and fame is, I mean, we live, I mean, it's, it's public wallpaper. It's, yeah, it's, it's its own commodity. It's, it, yeah. is a, it is a commodity and a product, mm -hmm. and people are turned into products. And the story of their ascent uh, is uh, uh, as useful as the story of their descent. And that uh, we put them up there and knock them off. Yep. And, uh, uh, you know, fame is, 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 I mean, if you were to draw the cartoon, the illustration of fame, it would be a <laughs> sturdy oak tree with a lightning bolt uh, uh, streaking directly toward it. Oh, what a brilliant and uh that that's that's uh it's perhaps human nature but yeah. uh, that that's that's what we do we really do it now you yep. know and people Absolutely. are famous today for no other reason than they're famous yeah you know they have no no 
no accomplishments of, of worth, no crafts, no skills. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, uh, but they, they have been uh, uh, chosen for a, a time to be famous. You know, so we encounter their mugs, you know, in the supermarket. Uh, uh, we indulge it whether we like it or not. It is, yeah. <laughs> it comes with the water. Uh, if, if you're successful as the director of, of this show for, for our audience uh, at the Utah Shakespeare Festival, uh, what, what do you think people uh, go home? What, what's in their hearts? What, what are they thinking about when they leave this show? Who, who am I when I am confronted with these feelings about people wow. around me the the deepest darkest yes. parts of ourselves yes. uh, again yes. it's an understanding again of 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 what we're capable of both in the enrapturing uh, exalted sense of artistic accomplishment and in the darker recesses as well yeah. we are both all of us we have we have all of that in us yeah the light and the dark and one will be one may be in the ascent over the other, but one should always be aware of what and when and how and, and have an awareness. What know? could and be I think, the trigger? I think that's what it, what it does. It, it's very honest about that, and it's thrillingly theatrical at the same time and, uh, and tells an extraordinary story of its own. Yeah, I was just about to ask you to give uh, an elevator pitch to our audience of why they should see the show, and you kind of did both. Uh, just now answering my previous question and telling people why uh, this plague uh, should matter to them, why they should uh, get their tickets and, and get in the audience and see it. And visually, um, it should be a feast. As it well. should be a feast. Uh, yeah, yeah, I David can't. Mickelson's, uh, David Mickelson has done this, a costume designer, has done this play four times. Oh, wow. So he uh, he has worked through many iterations of it. Uh, Had a, a lot of chances to get yeah. it exactly right. Yeah, well, or uh, to look know at it, it through a new lens. To or, know yeah. it better and better and more deeply and more deeply. That's a great – I've done the play once before, and that certainly has aided me in dealing with its complexities. But uh, it's not often you get a chance to get back to a play of this scope. Yeah, the scale. And size yeah. and scale. And take what you have um, experienced about it and learned about it and, yeah. and, and, and go at it afresh and anew. Awesome. Thank you so much. I know you're just up to your eyeballs right now uh, with rehearsals and everything else. So thank you so much for taking time out My to do My pleasure. This. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for catching this episode of the Play On Podcast. If you haven't listened to our last episode with festival founder Fred C. Adams, be sure to go back and have a listen. This summer, you'll be fortunate to hear many voices host the podcast, as we will be releasing episodes each week with your favorite directors, actors, and designers from the 2015 season. Be sure to check out next week's episode with Sharon Ott, who is directing this year's production of King Lear. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes through your computer or mobile device. Search for Utah Shakespeare Festival Play On Podcast on your favorite podcast app. If you've been to the festival's website, bard.org, recently, you've probably noticed that things are a little bit different. You can locate the podcast on our website by clicking on the news heading at the top of the festivalbard.org homepage. <laughs>